This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Have you heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, during the American Revolution, one enemy of France was Britain. And as the saying goes, France and the fledgling United States joined forces as friends to defeat the British. But from the viewpoint of the French monarchy, there was a dark side to this newfound friendship that opened up the French people to some new and dangerous ideas. Today, we welcome Dr. Bertrand von Rumbeck, please forgive the pronunciation, to talk about the American Revolution's influence in France. This is too complicated for history. Welcome, everybody. Uh, and I'd like to welcome our guest, author and professor of American history in Paris and coordinator of America 2026, which is a conference exploring uh, the American Revolution, but it taking place in Europe over the next couple of years, Bertrand van Rumbeck. Thanks so much for being here, Bertrand. Thank you. So uh, uh, before we get into like the actual like deep his- history stuff and start getting into the nitty gritty of, of, of what we're here to talk about, I would bet that there's a good chunk of our listeners that didn't realize that there were historians that study the America and American history in Europe. Um, is that, are there a lot of you or are you one of the few? <laughs> Depending on the period. But in France, we have, um, we have a thriving community of uh, scholars, U.S. scholars, but most of them working on uh, the contemporary United States uh, the on cinema, for example, or material mm. culture, uh, on race, also um, politics. Um, but um, there is also a small part of us who work on the the 18th century. Um, there are the very few of us in France and also in Europe, actually. But France has a strong program. Uh, we call it civilization instead of history, even though I do history mm. and many of my colleagues do history, but we use civilization to include people who do contemporary um, things, uh, uh, contemporary topics. Uh, but I would say there are, at, we have an association of Americanists and there are at least a thousand members. So it's, uh, it's strong. Oh, wow. That's more than I thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you must have a lot of interest with students. Definitely. Uh, many students want to know about, you know, because they they watch so much US, so many U.S. programs on TV that they, you know, they want to know more about uh, this very strange, faraway country that is influencing <laughs> our lifestyle. So, um, and th- this will bring us to their topic, of course, because we still write about America like they used to in the 1780s. 
I, yeah, I was gonna say that's a beautiful transition to what we're here to talk about, and 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 it's a little bit just to give you know the audience an overview. What we wanted to talk to Bertrand about was kind of like the French conception or the ideas of America that took place around the time of the American Revolution, the 1770s, 1780s, because um, you know uh, as we we don't like to uh, give a lot of weight to it in our history courses, especially in <laughs> elementary school. But the French were very involved in the revolution. Um, and uh, it's, it's an interesting and fascinating story how like this monarchy got involved in a war across the Atlantic and, uh, you know, against, um, you know, one of their main rivals in the, in the world. Um, Bertrand, could you think you could set the stage a little bit for like, you know, what people thought of, I guess, the early American uprisings, like the, like the, 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 the rebellions, things like that, or, or what context do we need to know in order to understand uh, the, Fr- the French um, perspective of the, in that, at that time? Well, at first, there were very few publications on America, um, that is British America, let's say in the 1750s or before, because to, to the French people, the Americas were mainly the Caribbean, uh, Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti after mm. the Haitian Revolution in 1804, mm-hmm. Guadeloupe, uh, Martinique, islands that are still part of France today, and of course, New France. Um, Acadie, Acadia, that became Nova Scotia in 1713, and New France mm. that was lost during the, at the end of the Seven Years' War. Um, so there were very few books, and the books that were published in France were, were on French America or Spanish America, because two people then... The Americas were mostly the Iberian colonies, Brazil and New Spain and Peru. You know, that's what when people talked about America, that was it. Then Mm. in the 1750s, um, the war in between France and Great Britain in North America led French people um, publish essays on uh, the British colonies, these unknown British colonies that suddenly defeated France. Uh, you know, with Great Britain, obviously, and took over Canada. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first, that's how it started, in the 1750s. Then in the 1760s, uh, Dickinson uh, letters were translated into French. Actually, they were published in 68 mm-hmm. and translated right away in 69 by um, uh, a merchant named uh, Jacques Barbeau Dubourg, who was Franklin's best friend, actually. He also translated Franklin's um, works into French. And he translated uh, Dickinson's letters. That's how it started, in the late 60s. And then gradually, in the, let's say, mid-70s, the French government, Versailles, let's say, um, published a periodical named, um, sorry, it will be in French, uh, Les Affaires, de l'Angleterre et de l'Amérique. And this was about the revolution. And it started in 1734. And that's when this brought literally uh, the American crisis and then the American, or the Anglo-American crisis and then the American revolution into France. And I would say 1774. Huh. A Dickinson crossover is not what I was expecting, to be honest. <laughs> and and are you are you talking about the um, letters from a Pennsylvania farmer? Are yes. those the Dickinsons? Yeah. Letters. Okay. Okay. And can you give a little overview of what exactly he was writing about that uh, were translated and then perhaps garnered interest in? in France when they were able to read them? Well, what is interesting is that a philosophe like Diderot, uh, a major French philosopher of the Enlightenment, um, mm-hmm. read those letters 10 years later 
in the in well, well almost 10 years later in the mid 1770s and he wrote something fascinating he said how does the monarchy let publish essays or letters like this and without uh, anticipating that it will change us and that's to me hmm. it's the uh, the complexity of French assistance to the American Revolution is that the monarchy was so much interested in fighting Britain and actually weakening Britain right. because Great Britain had become too powerful in the eyes of the French after the Seven Years' War because the French wanted um, to weaken Great Britain in order to reach an older balance of power, a traditional balance of power in Europe uh, that was to the advantage of France, of course. But not, they didn't want France to dominate Europe, but they didn't want, certainly didn't want Britain to dominate Europe. And um, so to the complexity of this uh, French assistance, this monarchy helping Republicans can only be understood when um, people realize that Louis XVI, the French monarchy, always, uh, well, the French monarchy had a, a tradition to help rebels wherever in Europe, as long as they could weaken a potential enemy. Uh, so it's not that they were so much interested in Republicans or Americans, at least, you know, Louis XVI and his prime, his um, uh, foreign affairs secretary, let's say, his name was Vergen. Um, they just wanted, they thought, okay, that's a way to, to, weaken, to weaken Great Britain. Um, but the thing is, to go back to Diderot's quote, is that the French monarchy helped Republicans without anticipating that French people reading uh, essays by Republicans might might influence them against the monarchy. Right. They mm. didn't realize they were actually training their citizens to do similar to what uh, the American colonists were doing. Yeah. And um, to one, clarify one for our audience, for, wait, before, yes. we, before you, very well, just to clarify <laughs> for our audience, um, when, he, when, when Bertrand says Republicans, he's talking with small right. R Republicans, okay. not big R Republicans like we have in the American right. political system. Just so, yes. because we'll not use that word a lot. Yeah, that's we're right. for, yeah, we're not talking about, we're talking about the, you know, the, a, a kind of a political person. Well, Republicans a versus monarchies, I guess, people in favor, in yeah. favor of, uh, of right. a republic. Yeah, and there were like there's a bunch of different uh, things that were talking about. like the parliamentarians, the Republican, like the mm -hmm. way they're, they're about they're advocating for particular structures of government, um, not a political party. But yeah, oh, sorry, Lynn, I didn't mean to interrupt. But oh. no, that's exactly what I was about to say that that we oh. weren't talking about the political parties, <laughs> but the Republican was being used in a different form here. But to go back <laughs> to your original question, what was uh, what French people or at the beginning, let's say philosophers were interested in, um, Dick in what Dickinson wrote was the way mm -hmm. contested taxation. That was very, interested to, very interesting to French huh. people. Um, how the Americans wanted to negotiate uh, their own taxation and, um, and the idea of no taxation without representation of what developed out of this, uh, this pamphlet war between Britain and America was very, interested, very interesting to French people. Who let let um, let share with our audience that these the French people didn't have an assembly, as opposed to, to mm. Great Britain. Um, right. So it was an absolute monarchy. And the the interesting thing about the crisis, the Anglo-American crisis, and the, uh, the the U.S. or at least British America entering the scene is that traditionally the 
the French uh, envied the British. I guess they, they fought them, but at the same time, they envied their constitutional monarchy. So suddenly, hmm. with the birth of the U.S. Republic in, uh, in 1783, there was another model that was still English-speaking territory, mm-hmm. but still, that was not England. So it's, it's a very complex issue, and, and this has to be factored in. That's very interesting that the I never really thought about the cross pollination because you hear a lot about how the Enlightenment thinkers influenced early American thinkers, right. like the folks over here. You never really hear how, you know, folks like did or like they were reading writings from America and how it was influencing stuff going the other way across the Atlantic. Um, that's really interesting, right? And how we we always talk about how oh, oh France wanted to help us, but it's more no they they wanted to. It was more about you know. Um, pushing back against England than it was about just helping this new nation. It's sort of the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind yeah. of thing. Well, you had both. That is, the, you, you had Louis XVI and his government uh, really, you know, wanted, of course, to weaken Britain to, re, to reestablish a balance mm-hmm. that had been lost, clearly. Okay. But at the same time, you had um, members of the French nobility who wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted a war because to, to the French nobility, the essence of life was war. And so the war of independence was um, an opportunity. You know, somebody like Lafayette, you know, of course he wrote about freedom, right. which can be understood in different, in different meanings, actually. Um, but anyway, and he wanted to glory. I mean, the, the, the nobility... Um, the French nobility was looking for glory through arms, through mm. fighting. Because they, as opposed to the English nobility, the French nobility did not work and did not really invest much. They, they still had a very archaic uh, perception of their role in society through war, you know, mm. hunting and war, basically. And then you had people who were really uh, interested in the American cause, uh, you know, maybe at a lower level, uh, mm-hmm. who there was an opportunity to fight Britain, but also they were curious about this, um, not knowing that it would become a republic, obviously, at the beginning, but they were interested in this, uh, this faraway land and this faraway rebellion. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That that interest did it. 
cross over into criticism of the of the monarchy that like you're saying that there's hey there was interest in they're like they admired the the assembly system in britain and they you know there's here's this other model did these folks know at least the philosophs or or, or people in general know that there was something wrong with with the way things were like the status quo in france or was uh was there dissatisfaction generally that early um because i don't know why i always think of it as having started with the revolution going forward like oh that was inspirational right. and caused more uh, stuff but i guess it gets some of those feelings predate the actual the, the revolution itself well it's a very complex period it's the 70s and 80s in france before before 1789 uh-huh. because it can be argued in different mm-hmm. ways you can say that philosophers like Diderot and Rousseau and uh, others um, wanted to change society. At the same time, other people wanted to keep the monarchy. Um, other people wanted to have some sort of assembly, or because but other people wanted to keep the as- to keep the assemblies. Because what makes France very complex at the time is that there were at least sixteen assemblies. There were regional assemblies. But they did not vote hmm. laws. They registered royal edicts. But they still had power, regional power. What was called at the time privilege, privileges. Because once uh, over the history of France and the French monarchy, each region that entered the kingdom negotiated to keep some of their privileges. Uh, for example, it could be a tax on salt or it could be the right the right to keep a parliament. It was called a parliament. Uh, there was one in Brittany. There was one in Dauphiny. Uh, and, you know, there was one in Paris, obviously. So, and you had region without, regions or provinces without parliament. So there was very, very, um, very complex puzzle. So mm. in the, starting in the, especially after the American war, what we call here the American war, like in French, we say la guerre d'Amérique, that is, uh, the war where we sent, you know, we sent soldiers to um, cost so much because wars are so expensive um, that um, it accelerated reforms. So you can say, well, the revolution started in uh, May 1789 with the, the Estate General Meeting. Uh, but also you can say, no, it started a few years before when the monarchy tried reform the system, especially its finances, but failed. Um, so you, you had the you had deeper roots. What has you know what what it's obvious is that the American Revolution and France's involvement accelerated the process. And I think um, the same way as you just explained, we tend um, historians of the era, we tend to separate the Revolutionary War which was the actual war with the American Revolution, which started about 1765 with the Stamp Act. And so I, I think that's kind of what uh, what Isaac was getting at, is you had a long time, you know, 65 to 75. So you've got a decade of all of this growing, which we consider part of the revolution, but not the war itself. Yes. And the, the French people <clears throat> wrote, read, read what was translated, you know, in the periodical that I right. mentioned. Um, that was Les, Affi- Les Affaires de, de l'Angleterre et de l'Amérique uh, that was published mm-hmm. and financed by Versailles, actually, because Versailles was a, in a very difficult position, uh, the government and the monarchy. They, they, they had to convince the people, although, because although it's an absolute monarchy, you need to still convince your subjects that, you know, 
it's good for the country. I mean, you, you, sometimes we sort of fantasize on the absolute, mon absolute monarchies being dictatorships, but it's not true. Um, there was always negotiations with the provinces, with the parliament in the case of France, but with the subjects also and with the elites. Uh, anyway, so the, the Versailles was caught in, into something very difficult to, to, to manage is that they, they had to convince the French people that uh, the war was good for them, for France. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was this risk that if the United States became a republic and you know, whatever was being translated could influence France. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, somebody like Louis XVI or Vergen and other ministers could not have been so naive as not to think that it would have some sort of influence. Uh, but they had to they had to translate whatever right. Americans wrote against against Parliament or against uh, George III in order to convince French people. I mean, they have to make they had to make it known. They, we cannot imagine France sending its military to America without the people right. knowing about it. Uh, this could not be done. That's a tough situation to be in, thinking about convincing them that the American war and, and them sending their soldiers over to fight in it is a good thing, but let's not copy it here because we're just fine how we are. <laughs> here being France, yeah. <laughs> no, but it, it, this is the core of it, I think. That, um, what we might uh, describe as a na being naive mm -hmm was a very deep feeling that uh, America was different. Mm -hmm. So if these colonies became a republic, it could not happen to France because France right. was an older mm -hmm. society, an ancien regime society, you know, whose structure was rooted into the Middle Ages. So it has nothing to do with, with, uh, with uh, the, the, those colonies founded, you know, only 150 years before. Right. Uh, it, For French people, it meant they had no history. Um, so, <clears throat> France was different. Therefore, what was what was happening to in in America could not happen to France. I mean, this this is probably something that was very felt very strongly, um, and that sort of balanced the risk of it happening uh, to France. Yeah, and to be fair, they were kind of right. You know, it wasn't exactly the same. No, <laughs> it didn't turn out exactly the same. <laughs> um, but so, so I, that's that's so fascinating how America kind of captured a lot of consciousness, and and because it seems like it was purposeful, like hey, we need to garner interest in this, right? Um, from like the top down because we want to do X, but then that there was you know it coincided with this you know intellectual interest. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you. Um, Send us over some 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 stuff over uh, about um, writing contests yes. that were that were held. Um, I would love love to hear a little bit about those. Yeah, this is a very very French thing, even today, because today in France we love contests. And to become a civil servant, you know, I'm going to joke about it. So being one myself, a civil servant, being a professor, college professor, but um, you know, maybe half the population dream of working for the state, you know. And mm -hmm. to do that, you need to take a, an exam, a very com a highly competitive nationwide exam. Anyway, mm -hmm. so if you go back to the 18th century, you had those prize-winning contests that were organized by academy. There were 32 academy, and academy were like learned, learned societies 
um, <clears throat> there was one in France, in Paris, excuse me, that was um, very famous called Académie Française, and it's, it's still around. There was also the Académie des Sciences uh, that invited Franklin, for example. But main regional cities like Lyon, um, Toulouse, uh, La Rochelle, um, had Acadie, Marseille, had academy themselves, regional academies. They were very prestigious uh, because founded, most of them were founded in the early 18th century um, and mm -hmm. by royal patents. So they are the, the, the royal author, authorization to, um, to get together and um, organize um, contests. So these contests, you know, in the early 18th century, there may have been 50 of them in, from 1700 to 1710. In the 1780s, there were 600 of them. Jeez. And over the 18th century, there were probably around 2,000 contests. So I was really, I, in my writing, I talk about the contest frenzy. And they could be on anything. Um, let me give you an um, example of, of topics. Because topics could be a question sure. or could be a statement. They had to comment on a statement. Uh, for example, the severity of laws. Okay, that's it. You had to write, you know, pages about that. Uh, or mm -hmm. my favorite, how to clean the streets of Paris. <laughs> Wonderful question. Huh. Um, or you had the role of the historian. That's also one of my uh, oh. favorite questions. And you had many questions on medicine, uh, agriculture, manufacture, um, local history also. Uh, for example, how was Marseille under the Greeks, for example? You know, and you had to, um, to write about it because it's, it was about erudition and um, eloquence. Mm -hmm. uh, you had to write well. And um, so there were, you know, hundreds of questions and uh, contests were organized pretty much the same way. That is, they were open to everybody, uh, which is very unusual hmm. uh, for French society yeah. at the time. And so anybody could participate. Um, you would just submit a memoir to the academy. You heard about the, the contest through the press. And uh, you, send, you send a memoir. And um, at the same time, you placed an envelope with uh, your name and address and a motto, usually in Latin. And this motto was also on your memoir because the memoir was unsigned. Because it had to be anonymous. Oh. And then at the end of the contest, whoever won, the academy, the members of the academy would open the envelope, match the mottos, and see who wrote what. And um, well, that's how it worked. That wow. sounds anonymous. It, cool. it, it like <laughs> that. It, it, that is such an intellectual. Like I'm just <laughs> laughing at the, the comparison. Like what kind of contest do we na hold nationally here? It's like a hot dog eating. <laughs> right? A lot like, of eating. Yeah. Like there's a lot of eating competitions. I was like competitions for like who can keep their hand on a car for the longest gets the car. Like those are like American contests. This right? is so for, <laughs> like, for lack of a better phrase, like highfalutin. That, that, well, and that and what was the, shocking. What, what were the prizes? Was it just bragging rights? Did you win money? What was, okay. you know, what did you win? Yeah, well, you won money, yeah. yes. Uh, usually in the form of a medal. Oh. Uh, that you could oh. then sell because it was worth a certain amount of money, or there was also a cash mm -hmm. prize. But you also won reputation in the Republic of ah. Letters, what was called the Republic mm -hmm. of Letters. And they were very interesting. 
Uh, major philosophers uh, competed, but usually they did not compete, but they answered the questions. You know, they felt probably they were above competing with a local, mm. you know, cleric or doctor. Uh, but they still answer the question because and that's why those contests are also important because they, they open, the, they launch debates, nationwide or European-wide debates, and uh, people could just publish an answer without submitting for the contest, you know, submitting for the contest. Hmm. Um, and, but you, and you also had local champions, totally forgotten today. Uh, local champions who, you know, they, for example, at the Academy of Toulouse in southwestern France, um, there was one, one uh, writer who was a lawyer, actually, local lawyer, uh, who won a series of contests offered by the Academy of Toulouse. He only competed in Toulouse, and he won one contest on the American Revolution, by the way. Um, and so that's, and he became a member of the Academy because that was also a way, an avenue for promotion. If you won contest, you would be noticed, you know, you're, because I forgot to say, but the winner had his uh, essay published at the cost of the mm. academy. Uh, so suddenly it was available uh, nationwide. Was this gen- so? Actually, this is a good question um, that our producer Pat actually is feeling right now. Did you <laughs> said it was open to anyone? Did that include women? Yes, there, um, huh. uh, there were a few Excellent. women um, send memoirs. Definitely. Did any win that you know of? Not that I know of, Gosh. but it's a small percentage. <laughs> a small percentage. Right, hmm. right. Just the fact that they accepted them, um, I'm impressed by. That's so interesting. So, uh, there, there, so some of these were done on the American public. Some of these questions. Um, what were those? Uh, what what kind of questions were they asking about the uh, America in, in in this contest? So, two two type of questions. There was one um, <clears throat> at the Academy of Toulouse. Uh, in 1784, so after U.S. independence, um, that was uh, labeled um, the greatness and importance of the American Revolution. That's it. So wow. You had to comment on that. <laughs> and huh. to me, it's very revealing. And it's very, it's very French in the sense that even today, when you take an exam, you better pay attention to the wording of the topic. Because the wording of the topic implies an answer. Because if the wording right. is greatness and importance of revolution, you're not going to downplay the American Revolution unless you don't want to win. Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. So, um, the, and the other type of questions, we had three of them in Po, which is uh, near the Pyrenees, near Spain, a small town in the mountains. Uh, in Lyon, was offered the same questions, and also in Paris. And this question was um, the consequences of the colonization of the new world, or rather, sorry, the consequences of the discovery of the new world. And that was what was asked of the what was asked of the contestants was to think about colonization. Hmm. And this obviously was brought about by the birth of the United States because this question, the first question was imposed in 1774, then in Lyon in the mm-hmm. 1780s because in Lyon they decided, well, it was in 1781, no winner, the, academy, the members of the academy decided not to award the prize. So it was renewed in 83, then again renewed in 85, 
then again renewed in 89. So it's a wonderful, wow. a wonderful window for us because throughout the 1780s, people answered uh, this question that is the consequences of the, of the discovery of America. And actually, uh, I'd like to read, read the, uh, the question to you because it's, it's a very complex question. I think it's, it's fascinating. And if you think that it, last, it lasted for an entire uh, decade, so this is, here it is. Has the discovery of America been useful or harmful to humankind? If goods resulted from it, what are the means to preserve them and increase them? If it caused ills, how can they be remedied? So it's a wonderful question and it's extremely complex because you have to think of colonization since Christopher Columbus by basically. And then to mm -hmm. think of everything that happened since, but good or bad. And for the bad, you have to think of remedies. For the good, you have to think of how to keep them. So it's a, it's a very, and it's humankind. It's not Europe. Because the same question was asked in Paris in 1792. But it was uh, reduced to Europe. That is, what were the consequences of the discovery of America to Europe? And that changes everything, because if you say humankind, you mention the Native Americans, and you, you have to mention, of course, slavery. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it is just Europe, you can limit your conversation to intellectual consequences. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Is there a particular reason that you think that it went from being European focus to suddenly becoming a global issue that they decided to expand it to this extent. Well, th when the Lyon when the Lyon question was uh, probably was probably thought to be too difficult, and since the the Academy of Lyon um, awarded no prize, the Academy Française, you know, based in Paris, probably say we better mm -hmm. make it simpler because nobody can answer that question. Right. That's probably the reason. And also, probably in 1792, of course, what is fascinating is that you had this essay contest over 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. So you were thinking about history as events were taking place. Because right. what makes it very interesting for Lyon is that when, when they started in 1781, that was before Yorktown, in 1789, mm -hmm. you have a nation. So, of course, the answers are going to be different, um, right. whether you answer the question in 1781 or 1789. Right. And it shows in the, essay, in the essays, if you look at them over the years, you realize that because what is, I think, totally unexpected if we don't know the 18th century, if we don't know that period, what is totally unexpected is that con colonization is condemned. That is... Wow. People in the 18th century, at least those who answered those questions, um, thought that colonization 
was devastating. Um, the destruction huh. of the native civilization, what was called civilizations at the time, uh, slavery, of course, all the major evil you know, of the time, um, wars, colonial wars, immigration that was thought to weaken Europe. All those things you know, made colonization, especially Spanish colonization, because mixed into it, you also had the anti-Spanish, what is called the black legend, um, mm -hmm. anti-Spanish feeling. You know, look, at, look at what Spain did in, um, in Mexico or Peru. Uh, for example, the mines, mm. the mines, the silver and gold mines uh, where natives were exploited are always mentioned in the answer. And then suddenly, so 1492, it's a, it's a horrible date in human history. Uh, but Columbus is saved. It's not his fault. That's that, what is interesting is, is Columbus is still a hero, but what happened is Europeans, Europeans made the worst of his discovery. But here comes the United States, huh. the American Revolution, and then the United States. So suddenly Europeans start thinking, hey, look, <laughs> colonies became a republic. Therefore, mm -hmm. there is hope. So it, it completely changes the answer. In other words, what I say in my, in my writing is that 1776 redeemed 1492. Oh. That's such a fascinating level of self-reflection that just isn't in – is that in the curriculum in France? Like, Do people – like when, when you're teaching history at this, of this time to students in France, do you, do you teach that kind of um, – sort of introspection by a nation, like those different perspectives that are happening. Uh, Cause it's, that's just, just not the way we teach history here. Um, that like, unfortunately. That, that, yeah, unfortunately it's just, it's just such a makes, it makes up for such a different dynamic um, that like when we, when you think of history, it's either plowed forward by these like gargantuan personalities or the other extreme is that people are just swept up in sort of the, the, the um the uh, what's the word that I'm looking for Lynn like the 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 wave like the historical like um trends the, trends, tr the yeah. trend yeah. yeah the historical trend right. like it's those two extremes but right. we never think about how the people who were sitting in the trend knew that they were in the trend or were critical of the of right. the people the great people at the, the like that there is much more complex debate and 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 complex thought. Like, so sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm complaining a little bit about the way we, we, we teach history here, but do, do, is that part of how you approach um, historical teachings in France? Well, definitely. Uh, but you are right on target for the 18th century, uh, which allows me to, to make two points here. First, you're totally right. To reflect on colonization and to reflect on the Americas was a way to reflect on Europe. And it's something very mm -hmm. important to understand is that it's not that America was neglected, it's that America was seen as a mirror. Say, okay, what did Europeans do in the Americas? Let's look at what we are. That's a way to think of what we are, but what we've done. And the second point is that this reflection on the, Ameri on the, on the American Revolution was grafted on the larger reflection on the new world. That is how the disc that's why they always mention discovery, why this discovery mm. of the new world, what did it bring to humankind? What how did it change mm -hmm. the world? So that's it's a very important. It's and and the last thing and the third comment I want to make is that this is a very interesting windows 
by this I mean the 1780s, 1770s, 1780s, mm. very interesting windows, unfortunately very short, on anti-colonialism, a sort of anti-colonialism. Mm. Of course, it can be nuanced mm. because it's not the anti-colonialism of the 1960s, obviously. Um, it's it, it has to be nuanced because this anti-colonialism condemned colonization uh, of land that were inhabited, but was allowed, quote-unquote, allowed on land that was not inhabited. And what did in, inhabited or uninhabited men to Europeans, it can be discussed, obviously. Uh, sure, but it's yeah. still, uh, still a, an, a form of anti-colonialism, nonetheless. But this is a short window, because with the turn of the 19th century, France in Algeria, for example, and England in India, will go back to colonialism. So colonialism will be once again justified. Uh, so I think this is very interesting um, to see this 1780s, you know, as a window, and of course related to the American Revolution. So I'm super curious. I, I mean, I love the question, but the last part of the question is, if it caused ills, how can they be remedied? Did anybody come up with any ideas about how to remedy slavery or how to remedy, you know, land being yeah. taken from Native Americans? You know, what were they saying? Yeah, that, because, right, it's it's easier to say that the, the Spaniards uh, did awful things in Spain and uh, in the Americas, but something else would find right. solution. And actually, uh, that's that's why I think that's one of the reasons, the other being that the uh, members of the academy wished for essays that um, saw the colonization in... Um, in a good light, uh, you know. In ah, a, you know they, yeah. I think they were. They, it was biased in in a way. But anyway, uh, one of the reason, and this can be because you were asking Isaac about, you know, how we teach and how I use because I use this essay contest in my class. <coughs> excuse me, advanced mm -hmm. class. And uh, how it can be used is exactly that: is that the academician, the members of the academy, uh, did not award um, the prize simply because the answers, the memoirs, are incomplete because they were an attack on colonization, but no remedies, huh. no solutions. Therefore, they cannot get, you know, uh, an A, you know, or A because, you know, right. Right, right, it's, right. Uh, They would deserve a lot more than that if they came up for a solution for slavery. I mean, they would yeah. be. <laughs> and, uh, but in some essays, um, two, you know, maybe two or three essays out of the 50, the people who, had, who try to to suggest solutions, and they are basically they are relatively well known. For example, mm -hmm. um, they um, they they wish for uh, natives to marry to intermarry with settlers. That's one way to ah. sort of incorporate Native yeah. Americans into mm -hmm. settler society. Um, right. Also, you need to. There is a very interesting essay where they say where these where the author says you need to. Um, substitute uh, the bow and the arrow for the plow and the oxen, you know, so to make Native Americans farmers. Um, regarding slavery, um, mm -hmm. of course, to stop the slave trade and then the other, other possibilities, I mean, other solutions that are suggested are to, um, mm. you know, intermarriage, free, you know, em gradual emancipation because Mm -hmm. It's already in, it's known in France that gradual emancipation has been adopted in Pennsylvania, right? 
1780. So it's known that at least the colony, the colony um, or former British colony uh, attempted to do that, which led me to the Quakers. I think that's, we should talk about the Quakers, by the way. Oh, oh, yeah. For sure, we are. Yeah, yeah, we we could love to. I would love to talk about. Actually, I would very much love to talk about Quakers. Absolutely. Um, but uh, <laughs> being from Pennsylvania, they're oh. very, very very fascinating, and we did. You know, it's weirdly it's part of your curriculum, like going growing up because uh, mm-hmm. that, that because they're they're around in the area, uh, so it's part of the local history. Um, but yeah, no, I would love to talk about well, Quakers. Just to say that Quakers were very, were in fashion in France at the time, and it's very it's very. Huh. It's, directly related to our topic today, because um, it's Voltaire in the 1730s. He published what is called as, uh, what are called English letters or philosophical letters. They were letters about England. And that was Anglomania. Actually, it started Anglomania of the 18th century. And there were three letters devoted to the Quakers. Uh, and one, one of these letters were also devoted to Pennsylvania and William Penn, known in, in, Fran, in French as Guillaume Penn, Guillaume being William. And um, then it started, it, started, it slowly started uh, sort of fashion about the Quakers that was reinforced by their gradual emancipation, gra- gradual abolition, of course. And so in all those memoirs, the Quakers are the perfect settler because they made peace hmm. with the natives. Uh, they, you know, Quaker slavery is totally forgotten. You know, they, they are known for their abolitionist for their abolitionism, um, and also they are good legislators. And Penn mm-hmm. is compared to a half legendary uh, Spartan legislator known as Lycurgus. Um, uh, because at the time people were, you know, fascinated by an, 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 the ancient world. Um, mm-hmm. So they, there is this fashion about the Quakers and all those memoirs. There are they are spared. They are, you know, every, and by the way, um, we haven't mentioned it yet, but it's a very important aspect of this uh, exchange between um, the United States, what became the United States, and France is this are the state constitutions. The state constitutions mm. were translated into French as early as 1776, and they were commented wow. on, huh. uh, and especially the Constitution of Virginia and the Constitution of Pennsylvania, the first Constitution of Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they they were discussed, they were published, you know, translated, published, discussed, and they influenced France's first Constitution that um, was elaborated in 1791. So once again, the Quakers. And the interesting thing is, is that everybody said, thought and said that Franklin was a Quaker. So that, that oh, uh, oh. made him even more famous. Right. And, uh, they, everybody <laughs> Little thought did they know. That Quaker, well, exactly. And everybody thought that <laughs> Franklin had written by himself the Pennsylvania Constitution. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because early in the episode, you were saying that, you know, war is so important. It's, you know, who it's how you establish yeah. yourself, your identity. And then they're looking at these Quakers and saying they're perfect, but Quakers don't believe in war. So how do you how do they justify that? True. Uh, well, it, that's the, <laughs> the complexity of everything and the paradox, you've had multiple <laughs> paradoxes you find in history. They admired the Quakers, but they thought they were eccentric. 
Oh, okay. That is, they, they, <laughs> they thought they were, they understood that they, that the society could not be, you could not have 50 million Quakers in one country. Um, you know, they see, they saw them as, as pacifist um, mm-hmm. people who also, be, be, uh, of course, you, you have to understand, obviously, that there is a filter, everything, because we're talking about people who had never seen a Quaker who had never been to England <laughs> or Pennsylvania. Good point. So they read things in French. So there is a, a mm-hmm. tremendous filter, a very thick filter. Right. And they were admired also because to French people, they had no priests. They had no churches, no priests. Since there was a, um, a feeling of anti-clericalism, you know, mm-hmm. against the Catholic Church mm-hmm. that was so dominating and Actually, it's Voltaire wrote in this vein. Voltaire, who was anti-clerical, he um, he admired the Quakers because he thought they had no priests. Of course, this is this can be discussed, obviously, but that's how they were mm. perceived. So that is that's one of the parts. It, it feels of like a very like like I get it, like there's a it's a very bourgeois notion to be like, listen, that's the way to live. Am I going to do it? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but other people should <laughs> but other folks should yeah <laughs> other people me but no of course not but that, that's part of this um, imaginary because as i yeah. as i said you know most people you know of course the vast majority of, of europeans have never seen america so they right. there was always things that were quite informed correct mm-hmm. actually in the 1780s there were history Excuse me. There were French histories of the America of the Revolutionary War, and when you read them, you find that relatively correct, hmm. but or accurate, I should say. But um, at the same time, there is also an imaginary dimension to it. Um, this is the New World, after all. Uh, it's that's how Europeans saw America at, at the time. So they they saw it as as a a land that would that had to be different from Europe. By definition, mm-hmm. so almost mm-hmm. romanticized, sort of. Yes, and what and what okay. the, what the war changed, well, the French involvement mm-hmm. in the war changed. Is that suddenly you had officers who came back from America, having seen America and having seen Americans, mm-hmm. and what is ex- quite a entertaining in a way is to read their essays because they all wanted to publish essays or travel accounts. Uh, you know, on America because that was very fashionable, and because mm-hmm. you know you had those salons, uh, <clears throat> those salons in Paris that was a very important of um, the elite, uh, the elite life salon were usually held by a, a woman, a lady, mm-hmm. a noble lady uh, that had people over for dinner, uh, invited philosophes because you needed philosophes, uh, you needed mm-hmm. artists, and um, and they would talk. They would discuss things. And in those salons, that's very, a very important part of French intellectual life in the 1770s and 1780s. Um, Franklin, for example, was invited to those salons all the time. Uh, so those, what were called Americanists, it's a very funny uh, phrase because that's what I am now, an Americanist. That's how I would be known in, in France, you know, people who study America. But in 1780s, they were called Americanists. They came back from, from America having seen it, having a first-hand experience of America, and it changed things because they could say, yes, Americans are like this, you know, they do this, they do that, you know. So 
it became less imaginary, but it's their vision. It, you know, it remained, you know, 100% subjective. That's really fascinating. Now, I, this actually and, thematically, I think, oh, oh go ahead, Lynn. Sorry. I, I, was, I was just going to say that you're talking about the salons and, you know, thinking of uh, revolutionary or in later Philadelphia. One of our episodes was on Elizabeth Willing Powell. And of course, she didn't call them salons, but had very similar um, meetings, you know, dinners and people come bringing people over held by a woman talking about politics and things like that. So it's just, it's interesting that they did that, but then they tried to say, no, it's not a salon because we're not, we're not a monarchy. So they were trying to like twist it into a more Republican form of these salons. By the way, that's, that was a, that was a way for women to get into the public sphere. Um, right. You know, through the salon. That's one of the paradoxes of the French monarchy or the French ancien regime is that women, of course, were not in any parliament and, you know, could not become ministers or whatever, of course. But that doesn't mean that they, they, they had no opinion and they were not listened to. Right. Uh, because those, in French, we call them salonnières, you know, who, those who held mm. the salon. And the salonnières, mm-hmm. for example, one of the most famous was... Um, uh, Condorcet's wife. Condorcet was a mathematician and philosopher, um, and his wife had a salon, and that was very well uh, well known in Paris at the time. Interesting. So, um, just that, that is so the American is coming back over, uh, you know, and sharing their experience and, and sort of like peeling back the veil of that imaginary uh, world. This this sort of tying things back thematically all the way right back to the beginning. So do you think that it's worth us sort of peeling back that veil, um, that sort of that, that, that fantasy of what the 18th century was and what the relationship between these countries today from a historical perspective um, it's, you know, is, is there's, I mean, obviously I do, I know part of the, part of the answer because this is the area of your, or of your study. Um, but I would love to tr- like transition that into a conversation about the conference uh, says that you're holding. Um, yeah. you know, and, and the value of um, a European perspective on the American Revolution. Well, th- thank you. I'm glad I can talk about it also. Um, but before I start, I'd like to say to quote a French historian who said that it's actually it's Olivier Chaline uh, who you, who you interviewed for the docu series on Washington. Oh yeah. Anyway, he said he wrote something very interesting. He said uh, very astute. He said the um, French involvement into the Revolutionary War was at the time a mistake because it led to, I mean, to the monarchy, because it led mm-hmm. to um, an, an immense you know, financial crisis. But to posterity, it was the best decision you could ever make <laughs> because, you know, now we can, France, you know, especially French politicians, but I think French people in general can, are very proud of having played this role, um, because even if you don't know anything about history, you still know Lafayette. So um, mm. you know it's about true. this role, uh, <laughs> and it, I think French people are very proud of it. Which link, which is, <clears throat> which leads me to talk about America twenty twenty six. It's uh, not, the idea. There are two ideas. First, um, that Europeans uh, tend to work uh, separately. For linguistic reasons, but not just linguistic reasons, but mainly for linguistic reasons. So you have the Germans, the Italians, the Spanish. So they, they, we have our own historiography. We 
converse with our American peers, uh, or British, uh, but that's it, but not among ourselves. Um, so that was one way, one, one, one of my objectives was to, to have a conversation within Europe. That is, for example, in May, we'll, I'll go to uh, Turin in uh, Italy to, to discuss the American Revolution with Italian historians. Oh. Um, I was in Munich last year to do the same with the German historians. So to us Europeans, it's something new. And then the second thing is to make our work known in the U.S. And as I, I strongly believe that we can do it. It will be easier if we do it collectively. Uh, that is just, you know, as myself or maybe with a couple of graduate students. Um, and then third thing, I said two, but there is three. The, the third goal is to make better known in Europe um, the new developments in the historiography, in the U.S. historiography of the American Revolution, because things have changed tremendously in the past, uh, mm. you know, 20 years. And this needs to be better known in Europe. So that's the three objectives. And uh, the idea is there's this major conference in, in fall 2026, but we have uh, small conferences or workshops along the way. Uh, we were in Munich. We were in Lyon. We're going to Turin. We'll go to Leiden. Uh, we'll go back to Germany. And we'll probably go to Philadelphia. So there are um, milestones, I guess, on the way to the major conference. We also have an exhibit because part of our work is also geared to the public. Uh, mm. We'll have an exhibit in La Rochelle, so in Western France, uh, a museum exhibit with, you know, talks, public talks. So it's also meant to, to I want to say, to reveal the American Revolution to most French people uh, so that they know that there was, because, of course, in France, we are strongly influenced by our own revolution. There are people who think that's the only revolution that counts was is the French <laughs> Revolution. So we want to say, hey, look, there was another revolution uh, across the seas. Will Will there be um, anything online? So if there are any talks, will they possibly be online? Will there? I mean, it would be really cool to take all the talks and then write, you know, do essays and publish that. You know, is that being talked about? Yes, definitely. We have one of our partners is the University of Virginia Press. And they will, oh, publish, perfect. they will publish one or two volumes out of, out of our work. Um, some are, are, and we have a website and there, uh, and a newsletter, a monthly newsletter. And there you can find recordings of some, some conferences because some are hybrid, but not all, fortunately. Mm -hmm. But uh, some that are recorded, uh, we've kept the, the recordings, definitely. Oh, fabulous. We'll have to put those links on. We'll put those links on our information, our website as well, so that people can go to them. For sure. Yeah, and I, I can't underemphasize how much opportunity there is in studying a European perspective on American history. Just on a, on a, on a personal note, we... When I flew to, we flew to France to interview um, Bertrand among other historians with an idea of like, hey, we want to make sure we get a, you know a global perspective on this, and you know, and the we went in with one idea, uh, and this is for the 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 Washington documentary series that is not out yet, so you will have to see what it will end up being. But we went in with one idea, and then I sat down for three interviews with three French scholars, and was like, you're, I was completely wrong. 
Our conception of this relationship was is completely wrong. And it's not that the work and the writings don't exist. They're just not published here in the States. Like the, the, our own blindness to our, exactly what you, like what you said, the experience in France that, that you're, Hey, this is the only important revolution that happened was yours. We have the same biases on our, on our end. And it completely shattered my conception of, of the relationship between France and, and English. And it was, a couple hours of conversation that did it. Uh, it wasn't exactly like diving into the deep, <laughs> like the nooks and crannies of any historical record. It was right there for the taking of, of conversations with people like yourself. But you um, know, um, what you, you go back to one of your previous questions is um, I do think that a global perspective or European perspective or transatlantic perspective on the American Revolution can really bring a lot uh, mm-hmm. to the American public, uh, of course, but also to American scholars. Um, because we necessarily, if you write from another place, uh, you nece- necessarily write differently. I mean, yeah. even if you use the same sources, you're, you're going to write differently. And so part of our, part of our project, America 2026, it's also... If we got enough, if we get enough funds for that, would be to have um, to make available online European sources on the American Revolution, like uh, published sources, because mm. manuscript would be too much. But published sources, for example, books in German on the American Revolution, or uh, books in French, in Italian. I mean, and then with an abstract in English, to either to make people see that everywhere. The Re- American Revolution was written about. Let hmm. me give you a, one one last example: is the Lyon contest essay. I found an essay in Danish, published in 1785 in Copenhagen, answering the Lyon question. So it shows hmm. that um, <clears throat> it can be anywhere. It can pop up anywhere. Uh, people thought about the American Revolution and. It led to reflections on colonization everywhere in Europe. Yeah, that's great. So, what, that's what's uh, you, you said you have a website up for the for the uh, the conference right now? What's that website? Just so that our listeners can go okay, and take a look sure. at it. Uh, www.america2026.eu. EU being for Europe. And so. Uh, I, I encourage everyone to go check it out. Subscribe to the newsletter, um, you know, and keep up to date as as these things keep happening because it's it, it's incredibly fascinating. And Lynn and I will be following along over the next oh, couple of years as well. Oh, thank you, thank you very much, yeah. and thank you know, thank you so much for your interest in what we do, and you know, I really appreciate. It. Yeah, no, and, thank and, you for what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and thanks, thanks, thank you so much, person, for, for for joining us and having this conversation today. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed it too, very much. Very pleasant. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at two C four H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price-Robbins, edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch, opening theme music by Sheena Biratello.